Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And here we are in Perigudalov, Pasuk Kafchet. So last week we, we glossed over a whole section where Rashi doesn't comment, which is the pedagogy, the, the pedigree leading from Shem, son of Noah, down to Avraham, or Avraham as he's currently kill, called. I just want to refer to Pasuk uh, Kafvav, where it says, Vayechi Terach Shivim Shana. Terach was 70 years old. Vayoled at Avram at Nachov at Haran. And when he was 70, he had three sons, Avram, Nachov, and Haram. Um, oh, we'll just, for the sake of completeness, we'll do Kavzayan. Ve'ela toldot terach, terach holid et Avram. So now we start a new section, which is toldot terach. And terach gave, begat Avram at Nachov at Haran. Ve'haran holid et Lot. So we know about terach's three children and one of his grandchildren. And then, Pasuk Kavchet, ve'yamat Haran, Al Panei Terech Aviv. Yeah, uh, Haran died. We'll leave Al Panei untranslated. Something about the face of Terech, his father. Be'eretz Moladato, in the land of his birthplace. Be'ur Kastim, in Ur Kastim, Ur of the Chaldees in English. So Rashi has something to say about the words Al Panei Terech Aviv. So he gives two explanations. And the first is Bachaye Aviv. In the life of his father. In other words, Haran predeceased Terach, and Alpanei is equivalent to Lifne. And that is the way it's used in relation to a, a recap on the Bnei Aharon in Bamidba Perak Gimor Pasuk Dalat. Talks about Nadav and Avi who died Alpanei uh, Aaron, and Rashi there says it means while Aaron was still alive. So, Alpanei. What does it mean? It's a bit of a strange phrase. Says Rashi, it means Bachaye Aviv. But then he says, Umidrash Agada. He brings a Midrashic explanation. And because it's quite long, I'll just say a few words before we get into it. Why does Rashi need to bring two explanations? So he could well be that uh, if it's not for a significant reason, as the Midrash is going to tell us, then we have the obvious question of why do we need to know that Haran died before his father? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of a tragedy because normally children live longer than their parents. Uh, in this case, it didn't happen. But we've had 10 generations and we don't know anything about obscure brothers and when they died in relation to their fathers. So you can ask, if it's just to tell us that Haran died while his father was still alive, why do we need to be told that? And perhaps that's the reason that Rashi brings a Midrash, which tells us something much, much more significant about the nature of how and why and when Haran died. So the Midrash Agadah Omer, Sha'al Yadei Aviv, mate, because of his father he died. So the Midrash gives a different translation of Al Panei, a Midrashic translation, because it's not the Peshat, it's not the simple meaning, and it means because of. So what does Al Panei mean? Peshat, it means in the life of his father, while his father's still alive. Midrash, it means because of his father. And what's the story? And the story is, Shakabal Terach al Avram Bano Livne Nimrod. That Terach complained about Avram, his son, in front of Nimrod. So, Nimrod, whom we've met before, we're going to meet later, according to Rashi. He's the king of Bovel. He's not a nice guy. Terach brings Avram to Nimrod. Why does he complain about it? Al Shakatat et Salamov, because he smashed his idols. Abraham, I'm going to call him Abraham because we do, even though at that time he was called Abraham, but retrospectively we call him Abraham. Abraham smashed Terach's idols. This is the very brief reference by Rashi to the very well known Midrash about Abraham smashing the idols, um, which is not recorded in the Torah, um, but it, it seems to be one of those Midrashim that has a lot of. Uh, support behind it that it's something that actually happened. It's part of the life of Abraham. The Rambam talks about it. Even Ibn Ezra talks about it. Um, uh, it represents Abraham as this great iconoclast. It's, it's a reality, but it's also a metaphor for Abraham breaking apart the old system. Anyway, it's only referred to, Derech Agav, it's only referred to, by the way, because it's part of the story that 
Rashi is bringing here, that Terach brought Abraham to Nimrod to complain about Abraham, to say that Abraham had done something bad and need to be punished. And what happened? They threw him into a furnace of fire. The Haran Yoshef, Haran sat, the Omer, and he said, Belibo in his heart, Im Avram not sayach, if Avraham wins, Ani Meshalo, I'm of his, I'll be on his side. The Im Nimrod not sayach, and if Nimrod wins, which presumably will mean Avraham doesn't emerge from the furnace, then Ani Meshalo, I will be on his side. And when Abraham was saved, they said to Haran, Whose side are you on? Haran said, pretty obvious. I can see who's, on the, who's winning. I'm on Abraham's side. They threw him into the fiery furnace, and he was burnt. So that is the end of Haran. And that is the Midrashic explanation of why he died. Not only does it mean he died in Terach's lifetime, but that's not, according to the Midrash, the meaning of Alpene Terach. It's because of Terach, because Terach started this ball rolling by bringing Abraham before Nimrod, and that indirectly resulted in Haran's death. We can also make a few interesting observations. Um, I saw in the name of Rabbi Riskin uh, many years ago, he said, in this parsha, we learn that Lot, sorry, Lot, Lot, Haran was on the fence. Who else was on the fence earlier on in this, in this parasha? Noah himself. Rashi, he said he was Makatne Yamuna. He was one of the, he, he, his belief was little. And he wasn't sure if the Teva was actually going to be needed and Hashem had to push him into the Teva. That was a verse we learned um, a long while ago. So you can say that both of them were not necessarily uh, 100% in their faith. And yet Noah lives and Haran dies. Rabbi Riskin said, the difference is, Noah did something. Even if you take, as Rashi says, Noah was 100% sure that the flood was going to come, he still built the Teva. Haran didn't do anything. He literally, well, not literally, he almost literally sat on the fence waiting to see what would happen. That's the difference between those two. One can also say that Haran, in a sense, is the first Jewish martyr. So now, looking a bit more positively at Haran, he kills himself because of his faith in Abraham. I mean, he didn't plan to kill himself, but he, threw it, he was allowed himself to be thrown into the fire, assuming that he would survive, which, of course, is where he went wrong. And we know that you can't rely on a nace. And if you do rely on a nace, sometimes the nace doesn't happen. And that's what was the case in this case. But nevertheless, you can say, if you want to be a little bit romantic about it, that Haran is the first Jewish martyr, which explains something that's going to come soon. So I'll leave that as a, like a little bit of a cliffhanger and we will explain soon what might be the significance of that as the story unfolds. And then Rashi continues with a little bit of explanation of a word, the word Ur, Ur Kastim, Ur of the Chaldees. What is Ur? It says Rashi, Vezehu Ur Kastim. That is what is meant by Ur Kastim. He's understanding Ur as in fire. Even though it normally is with a cholam, and here it's with a shuruk, says Rashi, that's what it means. Ur-Kastim is the fire of Kastim. I also heard a, um, 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 uh, geological explanation. They didn't know then, but we now know that the Mesopotamian region is full of oil under the surface. And they didn't dig for oil. But they did, I, I believe this is uh, historically correct, they did have fiery furnaces which tapped on the oil not far below the surface and was the way they made large-scale kilns. Um, and that was what you had in ur Kastim, the fire of Kastim. But then he also brings another explanation in the name of Menachem ben Shuruk, Suruk, sorry, Menachem ben Suruk, which was a, um, a person slightly before Rashi chronologically, um, who wrote a, what we today would call a dictionary of terms in the Tanakh. And Rashi quotes from time to time. I do not know why he quotes this as an alternative. Um, I didn't see anybody who explained why Rashi needs to bring one interpretation of Urakastim and then another. Uh, I think he's just saying, you know, I think it means Urakastim means fire of Kastim. But I should tell you that Menachem ben Suruk thinks it means something else. Piresh Ur Bika. 
He explains Ur as meaning a valley or somewhere deep. So Yeshaya in Perak Kaftala, Pasuk Tetvav, talks about people who, even if they are in a difficult state, they're in the valley, they're down below, nevertheless, they honor Hashem. Incidentally, if you look at Rashi on that Pasuk, he quotes Menachem ben Surak and he quotes his own opinion and he cross references back to our verse here to say that Urim can mean valleys, as Menachem ben Surak means it, or it can mean fires, as he thinks, as he, Rashi, thinks it is. And another example, Vachain Ma'urat Tsefa'oni, from the, um, it's usually translated as a viper's nest. Uh, this is also from Yeshaya Perigodalaf. It's the Perik about the lion lying down with the lamb and everything being perfect, and a little child putting their hand in a viper's nest or a viper's hole, or here not meaning valley, but meaning a deep place. Um, and that's also quoted by Menachem and Surak as to prove that Ur means somewhere deep. Kal Ur, Kal Chor, Ubika, Kurui, Ur. So according to Menachem and Surak, which Rashi is endorsing, um, that everywhere which is a hole or a valley, like a deep place, is called an Ur. Okay, so that was Rashi's two explanations of Alpanei Terach Aviv, the more pedestrian one that Haran died before Terach, which, as I said, leads to the question of why do we need to be told that, and the much more exciting explanation of this long Midrash, which basically is there to explain what it means that uh, Haran died because of Terach, but it's exciting because it alludes, just mentions brief reference to Avram smashing the idols and Avram himself being saved. That's not Rashi's focus, but of course we're fascinated by those details. Let's move on. Pasuk Kaftet. Vayikach Avraham v'nachor lehem nashim. Avram and Nachor, the two surviving brothers, because Haran is dead, took wives. Shem eshet Avram Sarai. Shem eshet Nachor Milka. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. That's the first mention of Sarah Imenu. And the name of the wife of Nachor was Milka. And then he gives a little bit of yichus, a genealogy of Milka. She is Bat Haran. She's the daughter of Haran. Avi Milka, who is the father of Milka, which is a little bit sort of recursive. Milka is the, son, is the daughter of Haran, who's the father of Milka. But it's more relevant for the next two words. The Avi Yiska. And he's also the father of Yiska. So Haran has died. We now realize he wasn't a child because he had two children. One's called Milka and one's called Yiska. And Milka is then married to her uncle Nachor. And what do we know about Yiska? So we know something very important about Yiska according to Rashi. Because Rashi says, Yiska, Zu Sarah. This is Sarah. Yiska is another name for Sarah. So before we go into why Yiska is another name for Sarah, now we can tie, just based on what Rashi said so far, we can tie up the family tree. Haran died. Haran had two daughters. The two daughters were married off to their two uncles. By the way, uncles marrying daughters actually is permitted, according to Halakha, um, and is not uncommon in the ancient world. And especially if daughters were left with no one to look after them, it was an act of uh, kindness to marry them, to give them some sort of uh, uh, security. So Milka is married by brother one, Nachor, and Yiska equals Sarah is married by brother two, Avraham. I'll just mention at this point that Lot, uh, as we will mention, uh, we already know who Lot is. Lot is the son of Haran. So Sarah, Haran actually had three children, sorry. Lot and Milka and Yiska equals Sarah. And Lot, as we're about to find out, but I don't mind spoiling this because we all know, Lot goes off with Avraham on his travels. Which means, if we realize that Sarah equals Yiska equals the daughter of Haran, then Avraham took with him both Haran's son, Lot, and Haran's daughter, Sarah. Why did he do that? No idea. But maybe, just maybe, it's a reflection of Haran being a martyr for Avraham's cause. So Avraham, I think it was Rabbi Riskin as well who I heard this from, Avraham... Uh, looks after Haran's children, who, after all, died, in a sense, for Abraham. Okay, let's look at Rashi on this interesting idea that Yiska, somebody who's not mentioned before or since, turns out to be somebody very, very significant, i.e. Sarah. And he says, Al-shem shesocha beruach ha-kodesh. 
because she looked with Ruach HaKodesh. Socha means to look, to gaze. And we know from later on that Sarah was a Naviyah. And Hashem actually said to Abraham, you listen to her. And Rashi there says, because she's an even greater Navi than you are. Where, where was Abraham told to listen to Sarah? Um, sending away Hagar. Um, and then sending away Ishmael. Um, so we know that Sarah was a Naviyah. So that's Socha. She looked Baruch HaKodesh. And then another thing. And everyone looked at her beauty. Which is not necessarily what a woman of Tzniot wants to happen, but because she was particularly beautiful, everyone looked at her. Also the word Socha. Who do we know in particular who looked at her? Now, in some versions of Rashi here, you have some words added which probably are not canonical, but they make reference to who looked at her? Sare Para. You got that in your book? Yeah. Uh, a reference to Perik Yud Bet Pasuk um, Yud Bet? Yud Bet Yud Bet? No, that's either when they arrived, when they got there, the Yerumitzrim Eti Isha. The people, the Egyptians saw the woman, Kiafahim Od. Yud Bet Yud Dalad. So if you use those words, then it sounds like Rashi is sort of. Uh, hinting at a particular occasion, if you don't have those words in Rashi, which is probably the correct version, then Rashi's saying, in general, she was beautiful and people looked at her beauty. And then he says, for Od, there's another explanation, which we'll come to in just a minute. But he quotes these two explanations. Number one, she looked with her own Ruach HaKodesh. And number two, everyone looked at her beauty. That come, both those ideas come from uh, the Gemara, from Megillah Yudalad Ahmad Aleph. Interestingly, in the Gemara, they're presented as alternatives, two different opinions. Rashi links them and implies they are one continuous opinion without saying Deva Acher, without saying another explanation. Um, and it's suggested that Rashi feels you actually need both explanations because there's a problem with the first. Um, the problem is, why would Haran name his daughter with some sense of what she's going to do in the future. Because even though we know that Sarah was a prophet, yes, prophet, maybe we can say prophet these days, um, we, there's no suggestion that Haran had Ruach HaKodesh. So why would he be naming his daughter on the basis that in the future she's going to have Ruach HaKodesh? But what he could name his daughter as is beautiful. And they could name her Yiska because of the second reason. Everyone looks at her beauty. The problem with that is it doesn't explain the Yud of Yiska, which puts it into the future. So Rashi puts both reasons together to make a complete complement. They're not contrasting with each other. They're complementing each other. So Socha Biaferha is what Haran names her. But then she becomes Yizka with a Yud because in the future she will see with Ruach HaKodesh. And then Rashi says, V'od, and furthermore. Now this doesn't actually make it a contrasting explanation, but it makes it like a separate explanation. It doesn't say Deva Acher, but it does say V'od. And furthermore, Yizka Lashon Nesichot. Yizka is an expression of nobility. Kamo Sarah Lashon Sarara. Like Sarah is an expression of ministership, um, aristocracy, or princessship, or all those words. Obviously, we know in Hebrew, a minister of the government is a Sar, and Sarah is the feminine form, Loshan Sarara. Why does Rashi have to bring that third part? Because, to back up what he said at the very beginning, what was the first thing he said about Yiska? That she is Sarah. Yiska is Sarah. So we can understand why she's Yiska. Rashi gave two explanations, which uh, I tried to explain fit together, why she's Yiska. But why is she Sara? And that's why Yiska and Sara are related. They both mean nobility. They both mean someone important. So that's why she was called Yiska here, but at the very same time, because we saw in the previous passage, she's called Sarai, which we know becomes Sara. Uh, she's also called Sara. So what's the link between the two? That's what Rashi gives us. Yes. Why would the Torah use two different words? Um, the Torah often does that. Um, 
the Tanakh does it a lot of times, and the Gemara often points out that this person and this person and this person and this person with four different names are all the same person. Yeah. Because, and when the Gemara does it, the answer is always because we can learn out different allusions from the different names. The different names tell us further characteristics or details of the, of the biography of those people or, or that person. So I assume here also, uh, as Rashi points out, Yiska tells us this thing, Sarah tells us that thing. They're all part of the, of the picture of the one person. Yeah, surely we just say Sarah, who was Yiska. It just seems very uh, elus- well, elusive. I, uh, the best I can do is say that often it, the Tanakh doesn't. Uh, at least the way Chazal explained Tanakh. They will take two people who seem to be two different people and they say they are the same person. That's basically what's happening here. I mean, of course, you can read this whole thing as saying Yiska is nothing to do with Sarah, as other Mephoshim do. In Pasuk Kaftet, Abraham married Sarah. In Pasuk, sorry, the same Pasuk, Pasuk Kaftet, Haran, we're told, had a daughter called Yiska. But if you do, you could read it like that, and there are no connection. But by the way, that actually raises another question, which perhaps Rashi's answering as well. If that were the case, if Sarah were not Yiska, then we'd have a very big question on the last words of Pasuk Kaftet. Namely, why do we need to be told about this person called Yiska? But then why would we, what, Milka doesn't come up anywhere else? Oh, yes, she does. She's the mother of Rivka. Uh, okay. okay. So that, 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 and that, that, that strengthens my question. Precisely because Milka does come up, that explains why Milka is mentioned. But Yiska, uh, without Rashi, is never mentioned again. And, and, so, and the question would be very strong. Why does the Torah give us that detail? And Rashi answers that question by saying, she is someone significant. She's just got a, a name that we know her better by. And, and what would be the point of the superfluous... Seemingly superfluous, Avi Milka. That I don't know. Sorry, got me stuck there. I, I realised that as I was saying it. It's really quite outstanding. Eshet Nacha Milka Bat Haran Avi Milka the Avi Yiska. I mean, it sounds like so and so is the uh, Reuven is the son of Shimon, and you know what? Shimon's got three children: Reuven, Levi, and Yehuda. You you could say that. Why the Torah needs to say that, I don't know. So Pasuk Lamed says, "Vatehi Sara Akara." La Vlad. Sarah was barren, infertile. She had no children. Rashi doesn't say anything about that, which I find quite interesting because there's an obvious question in that verse, which the Gomorrah answers, but Rashi doesn't feel it necessary to um, bring it. Since I mentioned it, what's the obvious question? If she's Akara, surely she doesn't have kids. That's right. If she's Akara, obviously, Ain La Vlad. So the Gomorrah in, I forget where, sorry, says. Um, she didn't even have a womb. Akara means she couldn't have children. Ain la vlad means she didn't have a womb. Why does it say that? Well, I can only suggest that that makes it even more miraculous and even more wondrous and even more of a chesed from Hashem that she later on does have a child. But Rashi doesn't say that. I, I was just curious. It's such an obvious question that Rashi would relate to, but he doesn't. So, Pasuk Lamad Aleph, Vayekach Terach et Avram Beno, Ve'et Lot ben Haran ben Beno, Ve'et Sarai Kalato Eshet Avram Beno, Ve'yetsu Itam Meor Kastim, Lelechet Arza Kenan, I should translate something, I suppose, Terach took Avram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter in law, the wife of Avram, his son. Just in case you've forgotten all the uh, family mishpachology, it's laying it out very clearly for you here. Vayetsu itam, and they went with them from Urkastim, lelechet arza Canaan, to go to the land of Canaan. Vayavo ad Haran, and they came to Haran, vayeshvu sham, and they dwelt there, or they stopped there. Um, later on, not this week, well, maybe, no, probably not this week, we'll see a sort of uh, a verse which I think complements that verse very well. But Rashi has a problem with the word Vayetsu Itam. What might be his problem with Vayetsu Itam in the middle of it? Well, let's look at Rashi's answer and then we'll try and see Rashi's question. Rashi's answer on Lamad Aleph, Vayetsu Itam, Vayetsu Terech Avram Im Lot Vasarai. Terech and Avram went with Lot and Sarai. What's the problem of Vayetsu? Exactly. Who is the subject of Vayetsu? 
Because we've got a subject at the beginning of the, ver- of the Pasuk, but that can't be the subject of Ayetsu. Why not? Singular. Exactly. Because the Pasuk at the beginning says, V'yikach terach, singular, and terach is doing all the taking, and we would naturally expect the next verse to have the, se- verb, sorry, to have the same subject, but it doesn't, it's a plural. So there, there's four people in the party, Terach, Avraham, Lot, and Sarai. And I, thought I should call her Sarah. If I'm calling Avraham, Avraham, I should call Sarai, Sarah. Um, and then it says, they went with them. So who's they and who's them? So Rashi has to sort that out for us. And he says, the people who were going were Terach and Avraham, and the people who were with them who are perhaps less significant in terms of leading the, the, the tour, are Lot and Sarai. So the problem is for Yetzu Itam, who is they going and who is they with them? And Rashi has to spell that out. How do they know that? How does he know that? Like it doesn't seem obvious from the text. That's not Abraham and... Okay, so the easy answer to a question like that is always, well, he gets it from the Midrash. Um, although I'm not quite sure where he gets it, if there is a particular Midrashic source for this one. Um, no, I suspect this one might not be. This might be just, actually, Rashi just working it out. Now, how does he work it out? I guess it's like this. So we're pretty sure Terach is one of the subjects of Ayetsu. And because we know what's coming next, and the whole story is devolving on the most important person in human history up to this point, namely Avraham Avinu, he's the other major player. Uh, it's probably a little bit uh, genderist in that there's probably an assumption that Sarai is not the prime mover here because she's the wife. And it's probably an assumption that, uh, that Lot, who's definitely a minor character and definitely not the leader of the group, he is not going to be one of the leaders. So if you have to sort it out between two being the subject of a Yetzu and you also need two others because Itam is also in the plural. So a Yetzu can't be three and it can't be four. It can only be two. So the obvious candidates for the two are Terach, who's been the leader up till now, and Avraham, who's going to be the most important person ever. And then uh, Rashi doesn't talk about why um, Terach set out for Haran, um, why Terach left Urkastim. Rashi doesn't mention it. Others talk about it, and it's a fascinating topic. And what's particularly fascinating, and Rashi doesn't address this at all, is where was Terach going? To Canaan! But he didn't make it. He didn't. Actually, I'll show you the plastic now that I want to comment on. Um, if you look at Yud Bet, hey, so this isn't Rashi, this is actually me for what it's worth. Yud Bet, hey, after Hashem tells Abraham to go to Canaan, you read this Yud Bet, hey, Vyakach Avram et Sarai Ishto, ve et Lot ben Achiv. So, very parallel to this verse that we're looking at now, very parallel to Yud Aleph, Lamed Aleph. It starts by saying what Abraham took with. He took these people. And then it says, uh, Identical words. We also have in Lamed Aleph, And then it says, Canaan. They set off to go to the land of Canaan, and wow, they got to the land of Canaan. Why is that a big deal? Why does the Torah need to say they set off to go from A to B? And you know what? They got to B. And I think because it contrasts, and it's so obvious when you look at it, it contrasts with Terach. Terach also set out to go to Arza Canaan. And he didn't quite make it. He only got to Haran, and there he stopped. But when Abraham goes, he makes it to Canaan. So the end of Yud Bet Hay contrasts beautifully with the end of Yud Aleph Lamad Aleph. And I'd like to say, and I think this is very relevant for many of us, that sometimes the parents set off on the journey and they don't make it. The children are the ones who complete the journey. And sometimes we can be very specific and very, we can relate it to circumstances I think we know well. Sometimes parents set off to go to Israel and they don't make it to Israel. They stop somewhere on the way. And they be Yeshvusham. And it's their children who make it to Israel. Anyway, nice idea. Not Rashi. Because Rashi doesn't talk about that at all. Rashi gives no explanation for why Terach was on his way to Arzakana. Then, Pasuk Lamad Bet. 
Vayihyu yemei terach chamesh shanim umataim shana vayama terach bacharan. So the days of Terach were 205 years, and Terach died in Charon. And that is the end of Terach, and that is the end of Pashat Noach. We've got a long Rashi to go, but that is how Pashat Noach ends. And very uh, dramatically, the spotlight is now entirely on Abraham and Jewish history. But let's look at Rashi on Lamad Bet. So Rashi has a big problem and one of the things we're going to ask is, why is it such a problem? And what's Rashi doing? Let's have a look. La'achar sheyetze Avraham mecharan. Terach died after Avraham left from Haran, ubat la'eretz Canaan, and came to Canaan. So Avraham, in the next verse, is going to make the journey to Canaan. Rashi is saying that there's a little bit of out of order here that what happened in Lamad Bet, the death of Terach, actually happened after, quite a bit after, what, happened, what is recorded next in Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Aleph, of Avraham getting the call and going to Canaan. Why are they out of order? So first of all, he has to prove that they're out of order. He says, There was more than 60 years. I'll come back to that more then, because that's a little bit odd. Terach actually died more than 60 years later than Abraham leaving. And yet, the Torah records Terach dying first. How do we know there's more than 60 years? Shaharei Ketiv, because it writes, Avram ben shanim v'shivim shana mecharan. Later on, we're going to read, uh, just a few pasukim hence, that Abraham was 75 years when he set out from Haran. 75. How old was Terach at that time? Anyone remember? Ah, this is why we started by looking at Pasuk Kaf Zion. Why, Pasuk Kaf Vav, sorry. Why did we look at Pasuk Kaf Vav? Now let's go back. I set you up for this. I set you up for success. <laughs> Pasuk Kaf Vav. How old was Terach when Abraham was born? 70. 70. Although it doesn't quite say that. We'll come back to that. So, therefore, when Abraham left, when he was 75, how old was Terach? Thank you. 145. As it says here. Va'Avraham ben chameshin and v'sheva shana b'tzeito mecharon v'terach ben shivim shana haya k'shanolad Avraham. Terach was 70. When Abraham was born, therefore Terach was 145, when Abraham left Haran. And how old was Terach when he died? Oh, 205, that's recorded explicitly in Pasuk Lamabet. So, there were lots of years left. Now, why doesn't Rashi say exactly 60 years? seems there's something that's not precise because it said more than 60 years. Okay, so he says more than 60 years and he says, now says, lots of years. Mm-hmm. Now Rashi could easily have said exactly 60 years and perhaps it's because there's actually a lack of clarity back in Pasuk Kafav. Go back to Pasuk Kafav, the one we started with tonight, deliberately. How old was Terach when Abraham was born? Not necessarily. What's the why? What's the vague? What's the impreciseness? Exactly. So by the time Terach was 70, he had three children. So we don't know exactly when Abraham was born in relation to Terach's uh, being 70. So that perhaps is the slight imprecision in the Chumash, reflected in the slight imprecision in Rashi. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out because you know, Rashi's really, really good that he, every word is precise. So even when he's not precise, there's a reason for it. Can you explain why the mass works well, that has to be out of order? I don't understand Rashi there. Because how old was Terach when he died? 205. And when, how old was Terach when Abraham left? Um, Younger than 205. That's all you need to say. Younger than 205. Because Terach was, when Abraham was born, or thereabouts, Terach was 70. Ter- Abraham left when Abraham was 75. 
So that's when Terach was 145 or thereabouts, 70 plus 75. Yeah. So when Abraham left, Terach was 145, not dead. Because he wasn't dead until he was... 25. Okay, so he, Abraham left before Terach died. And yet the Torah here says in Lamavet, Terach died, and it hasn't yet recorded Abraham leaving. Okay. Does that, that help you? Yeah. That's Rashi's point. So why does it do that? That's Rashi's question. Lama higdim hakatuv mitato shel terach liyetziato shel Avram. Rashi actually spells out the question, which is interesting. He doesn't always do that. Why does the pasuk put first the death of Terach before the leaving of Avraham? So that's the question. So first of all, Rashi has worked with a little bit of maths to prove that it's out of order, and now he says, why is it out of order? And here's the answer. So the matter should not be publicized to everybody. And they would say, Abraham did not maintain the honor of his father. He left him old and went away. The truth is, Abraham did do that. Abraham did leave his elderly father. And the Torah doesn't want to publicize that because people would say that he left his father and he didn't do kibbut av. Lefikha, continuing Rashi, kora'o hakatuv mate. So now Rashi actually goes on a slightly different path. Although he doesn't say it's a different path, so we assume it's not. Having said the Torah is out of order, he says, therefore, the Torah calls, the Pasuk calls him, Terach, mate, already dead. Why? Now he quotes an idea of Chazal, that the wicked people, even in their lifetime, are considered, I'm translating Kurim by considered, dead. And the parallel of that is, People who are righteous, even when they're dead, are called alive. How do we know that? Because that's based on a pasuk in Shmuel Bet. And it lists various people who were good people. It talks about someone called Benayahu, who's the son of Yehoda'ah, Ben Ish Chai. Now, if you look in the Pasuk, actually, it's a Ketivan Kari. It's read as Chayal, Ben Ish Chayal, the son of a strong man, son of a soldier man. But the Ketiv, how it's written, is Chai, the son of a person who is living. And the Chazal say there, what does it mean, son of a person who is living? Most people are living when they have children. I suppose not necessarily, but most people are living. What's the big deal? And from this, the Gemara learns that there are some people, because they're righteous, they're called alive even when they're dead. So Terach is the opposite of that. He's called dead even when he's alive. So Rashi says, in order that the Torah should not publicize the fact that Abraham left his father when he was still old, when his father was alive but old, so the Torah writes it as if Terach has already died. And by the way, he is already dead because he's a Russia. Okay, let's unpack lots of bits there. First of all, how do we know he's a Russia? You chose to throw Abraham aside? Yes, I was thinking before that, but you're quite right. He helped, did he help build the... Migdal No, not necessarily. Maybe. He was alive at the time. But no, what was his job? He was an idol. He was a professional idol seller. That's not good. Okay? Yes? If he was, then Avram doesn't have a chiyah being given over him, theoretically. Ah, so okay. why would anyone care? Okay, well, there's a, bit, there's a bigger excuse for Avraham. Uh, why would everyone care? I'll come to that in a minute. By the way, it's an interesting Shiloh. Um, should you honor your parents if they're Rashaim? I'm not going to get into that. I mean, Baruch Hashem, there are very few people today oh, that uh, the question will be relevant to who are really Rashaim. Um, but it's an interesting shaila about to what extent a person should honor their parents if their parents are not good people, but I'm not getting into that now. Um, uh, sorry, the question, uh, the, the big question, and the Mizrahi says, I, the Mizrahi can't understand the answer to this question, is... Who, for whom is this going to benefit? After all, um, we can read for ourselves. We can do the maths. If Rashi can do the maths, so can everybody else do the maths. And they can work out that the, um, 
death of Terach actually came later than Abraham leaving. Everyone can do the maths. So one answer is, well, maybe not everyone can do the maths. Maybe some people read the, the Chumash, or let's say they read the Bible superficially. They don't do the maths. And they read nicely, Terach died, and they turn to the next page, Avram went, and they don't get the point that Avram left before Terach died. What about those people who can do the maths? Well, you know what else they can do? They can read the next verse. And the next verse says, Vayomer Hashem el Avram lech lecha. They can read that Hashem tells Abraham to go. And therefore, they wouldn't have any criticism of Abraham. So there are some people who read it superficially. They don't do the maths. They, they read it as it is, and they don't ask the question because they read that Terach died before they read that Abraham left. And those who can do the maths, they can also read more carefully, and they can realize that Abraham is quite justified. That's one approach. Um, it actually occurs to me just now when I'm reading this, one of the beauties of this year is every, every, every week I learn new things that I hadn't seen before, as well as the discussion that we have. Um, it's not, it's shalo yehei hadavar musam lakol vayomru, vayomru, and the, the Torah wants to avoid, they will say, lo kayam Abraham et kavod aviv. Who's they? Who do you think they is? So I've, the first answer I've just given is, they are people who read the Torah superficially. I think it's something else. Non-Jewish people that want to take away from the glory of Abraham? Exactly. Or maybe even Jewish people, whatever. People who want to find a chink in Abraham's armor. You know these people. They want to say, because, without getting into the psychology of it, well, I'm going to, people who are threatened by Sadiqim. Sadiqim are threatening. You know why Sadiqim are threatening? Because if they can do it, so can we. And we don't. That's why they're threatening. And that's why... The human reaction when you're faced with somebody who's really good is to say, they're not really good. You know what? That Abraham guy, yeah, okay, he's quite a good guy. But you know what? He left his father when he was old. That's what people want to say. And if he leaves his father when he's old, you know, it's all a sham. And I don't have to be inspired by his example. It's a very natural human reaction. We all see it. I suspect we all do it to some extent. And I think that's what Rashi's saying. That the Torah wants to deny those people such an excuse. Incidentally, there's a few cases, and we'll come across them well, in years to come, where there are people who scoff, the leitzim, the scoffers, who scoff at Abraham and they scoff at Sarah. They want to find ways to bring him down, at least in their own minds, if not in, 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 in other ways. And I think that's what Rashi is saying. Yes, of course it's obvious. And, and the Torah is not kidding anyone. The Torah is not fooling anyone. We can all learn the Torah as well as Rashi did in this case. But there will still be people who will cling to excuses to bring down Abraham's greatness. And the Torah wants to take away one possible excuse. Now, next thing I want to say is, I also think this is very relevant. I'm going to say something personal and I'm going to say something controversial. I know it gets more exciting when I say controversial things. Maybe it makes more people listen to the podcast. Um, there are... Um, a lot of people who make a very difficult decision to go on Aliyah, even if it means leaving their family back here in Melbourne. And there are other people who say, I'm passionately committed to Aliyah, but how can I leave my parents and grandparents? And it's a very difficult choice, and it's a personal matter, but I think the Torah is saying quite clearly, what the halacha is, by the way, that when it comes to moving to Eretz Israel, that actually trumps kibbutz Avayim. If the halacha is, if your parents say, stay outside of Israel, and the child wants to go to Israel, then the child should go to Israel. Well, the child should go to Israel anyway, because we've all got a mitzvah to do that. But that is a, uh, a patur, an exemption from kibbutz Avraham. And this is an example. Um, and Avraham and the Torah, actually, when you read this Rashi, which, as it were, unpicks what the Torah hides, Rashi is telling you very clearly that Avraham did move from his family, um, I'm not saying the situation is exactly parallel, because number one, his father was a Russia, and number two, he was told to by Hashem. But here we have a, an example, which perhaps is an example for us all, that when it comes to making Aliyah, it sometimes involves leaving parents and grandparents behind. Having said that, in the interest of intellectual honesty, the Midrash tells this story, but amplifies it a bit, and the Midrash says completely the opposite of what I just said. The Midrash says, you, Abraham, have a patur, have an exemption from honoring your father, other people don't. So I, I have to say that because it completely contradicts what I just said. But we don't necessarily learn halacha from that midrash. Next thing to say is the Maharal 
says there's something very deep and profound going on here. That Abraham was disconnected from his father. Um, one can go even further. That Abraham, because he's about to establish the Jewish nation, makes a complete break from everything before him to the extent that, in a certain manner, his father is no longer his father. And that's what, what this Rashi is telling us, that he no longer had an obligation of Kibbut Av because Terach was no longer like his Av. There was a complete break. And how does the Torah express that complete break? By saying, out of order, that Terach has died. That, so even though it shouldn't have put it, the Pasuk Lamabet here, it should have come a few psukim later in, in chronological fashion, but it's telling you that from that moment, Abraham had no father to do Kibbut Av to because his father was dead to him. Okay, now one more thing. Let's go in a different direction. Why does Rashi have to say this at all? So the Ramban asks, what's the big deal? Very, very often in the Chumash, and particularly in Nach, we read, this king did certain things, and he had a child, and then the king died, and then the child did other things. In other words, we wrap up the story of one generation before we then teach the story of the next generation. And that's exactly what's happening here. What's the big deal? The Torah often, and as I say, the Nach, even more so, finishes one generation before it starts the next, even if the death of the previous generation took place after the deeds of the next generation. So that's a good question. So maybe you can give two possible answers, and maybe there are more. Number one, that's true, but um, it hasn't been like that up till now. Um, in fact, in the listing of the generations from Shem to Avraham, that was Perak Yud Aleph, um, it didn't say that anyone died. It said that they were born, like for instance, Pasuk Yud Gimel, Yud Aleph Yud Gimel, I'm just looking at it randomly. Vaychi Apachshad, sorry, Yud Bet, Achpachshad Chai Chamesh Shloshim Shana, Apachshad lived for 35 years, Vayoled Et Shalach. And then he had a son called Shalach. Vayechi Apachshad Acharei Holido Et Shalach. And Achpachshad lived after he begat Shalach. Shalosh Shanim Vaarba Me'ot Shana. For 403 years. Vayoled Banim Ubanot. And he had other children. What doesn't it say about Achpachshad or any of the other in that list of genealogy? It doesn't say they died. So now when it says Terach did die... That's a story. That's significant. Why is it telling us that Terach died? And there's something else. There's another detail here in Pasuk Lamad Bet, which might cry out Dorosheni, which might need explanation. What's the detail? Not only did Terach die, what else does the Torah tell us? It tells us where he died. So the point, the question the Ramban asks, all those examples in the Tanakh where we're told so-and-so died, we're not told where they died. So suddenly it's more than just telling us that Terach died. It's telling us where he was when he died, which then leads, gives rise to Rashi's question. Because Terach was in Haran. And who wasn't in Haran? Abraham. So the fact that it tells us, number one, that Terach died, which it hasn't told about the previous generations. Number two, it tells us that Terach was in Haran. And if you work it out and you read the next verse, you'll see that Abraham was not in Haran. It's emphasizing that Abraham is not with Terach when he died. So, hence Rashi's question, hence Rashi's answer. One more comment of Rashi, which is quite enigmatic. Back to the word Baharan, uh, and it says, Hanun hafucha. The Nun in Haran is upside down. So, we have a Masorah, we have a tradition that certain letters in the, in the Sefer Torah, sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, um, sometimes you have a backwards nun. Where do you have a backwards nun? By Heben Saharan. In Pasha Balotcha. And they serve, as Rashi says, like brackets. And is there another example of a letter upside down? I'm not actually familiar with one. The, the upside down, the backwards nuns are not part of a word. They're just like hanging there, like brackets. Um, I'm not sure I can think of an upside-down letter, but Rashi says the nun in Haran is upside-down. What's interesting is it isn't. <laughs> if you look in our Sefer Torah, 
If you look in every Sefer Torah, you will not find an upside-down nun. Some say that in the past, you see some sources that say in the past, yes, there were some Sefer Torah of an upside-down nun, but we have no Masora today that has it. And interestingly, the, I think the, the Shulchan Aruch goes out of its way to say, if you write a Sefer Torah without this nun upside-down, it's still a kosher Sefer Torah. Because some of these other things from the Masora, if you get them wrong, it actually uh, it makes the Sefer Torah apostle. But this one doesn't, which is good because every Sefer Torah we have today does not have a nun upside down. I remember Rabbi Bravender, the great Rabbi Bravender, a huge Tamil Chacham and a brilliant teacher. And part of his brilliance was he's very funny. That's not the main thing, but it, it's how, part of the way he teaches. He said, in Betat Futsot, you can find a model of Rashi's shawl. I think it's still there, even though Betat Futsot has changed very much and for the worst, but that's another story. You can find a model of Rashi Shul, and maybe if you go into the Aaron in the model of Rashi Shul, and you look in the Sefer Torah in the, in the Aaron in the model, maybe you'll find the Nun there upside down. That's what he said. But anyway, having said that our Masorah of this Nun is not like Rashi's, why is it upside down according to Rashi? Lomalacha, to teach you, Ad Avram haya haron af. Until Abraham, there was anger, charon, charon, get it? Of Hashem in the world. The upside down nun, focus, I, I, I couldn't see any significance of the letter nun, dafka, or the number 50. I couldn't see anything like that. I think just Rashi's saying that the upside down nun tells you that charon also means charon af, as in anger. And until that point, there was Hashem's anger. But that's about to change because of the coming of Abraham and his fulfilling his mission, which is what is the very, very next thing. So the last word of Noah is Haron, which Rashi says also alludes to Haron Af, anger. And the very next thing that's going to happen is Vayoma Hashem El Avram Lech Lecha Me'artzcha, the beginning of Abraham's greatness and the beginning of Jewish history. Could the Absalom known as only do the valve? That's from Haran to indicate there's some extra letter missing or something like that. Why do you want the nun to do with a vav? Because it looks similar. Turns Haran into Haran. Yeah, and a nun and a vav are very similar. So if you have a upside down, doesn't really work. mm, And especially in in the Sefer Torah script, Um, if you take a nun, a final nun, which looks like a long Zion, and you turn it upside down, it just looks funny. Uh, I don't think it looks like a different letter. I don't know. It's hard because, as I said, we don't really have this. We don't have this upside-down nun, so we don't really know exactly what it looks like. But if it's a regular nun turned upside-down, it wouldn't, in my opinion, um, from my training as a sofa many, many years ago, it wouldn't look like a, uh, an alternative letter. Because, you know, the top bit of the nun would now be at the bottom of yeah, the upside-down nun. So I'm not sure. And uh, I, I also, I'm surprised I couldn't see anything about 50 or something like that, but I couldn't see it. Um, so, Haran, as in the Nun, is just, uh, relate, turns Haran somehow into Haran Af, or at least makes you think of Haran Af, makes you think of anger. And I think that's probably a good place to stop. We have completed the second of the parashiot of the Torah. We only have 52 to go. Uh, but in Yetz Hashem, we'll keep going. And we come to Lech Lecha, which is full of narrative. So it's a little bit easier, actually, I think. But it's also very, very exciting. And as I keep saying... The Torah has now sort of introduced the world in its entirety and stage one of making the world, which was Gan Eden, stage two of making the world, which was after the flood. We're now up to stage three of making the world. And from now on, this is no longer the history of the world. It is the history of the Jewish people.